Are you familiar with the first African Baptist church in Savannah, Georgia? Their fellowship has quite a story. You, you, need, you need to hear it. It was, uh, it was founded in 1773 before America declared her independence from the British. Okay, their first pastor was a man named George Laley. And George, he was a slave, but his master had become a believer and then freed George in exchange for his allegiance to the British. And so in 1776, when America declared her independence, uh, George at that time became fearful that he would be sold back into slavery, captured and sold back into slavery. And so he left as the first American missionary, and he went to Jamaica to share the gospel and to plant a church there. So 30 years before Adoniram Judson was George Laley. But, but the story of the first African Baptist church in Savannah doesn't end there because in the early 1800s, they wanted to buy a building so they could meet together and they could worship in a building because as you know, the heat and the humidity in Savannah, Georgia is intense and who wants to just stay outside in that, right? And so they find a piece of land, there's, there's a building on the property and they go and they ask if they're able to purchase the building. Well, the, the owner said, hey, $1,500 and you can have it. $1,500 in today's money is over $35,000. Now where is a bunch of slaves gonna get $35,000 from to buy this property and this building? And by the way, they're given six months to do it. Well, slaves at that time, sometimes they just get money. Uh, for, for doing odds and ends sometimes. Every once in a while, you know, they, they'd get a little bit. And what they would do is they would stash that money behind a brick, inside their mattress, under a rug or something, someplace that they thought it would never be found. And their hope was that one day that that money would be able, they'd be able to use it to purchase their freedom. And so what they did is they take all this money. I mean, can you imagine just removing bricks and digging in and grabbing the money that you think will one day buy your freedom and pull it all together in order to buy this plot of land and this building? Why? Because the First African Baptist Church in Savannah, Georgia, realizes we just sang this morning that our freedom is in Jesus alone and so that he is the liberator of their souls. And so they pull this money together and they get the building. You know, it, it, it begs a question for us, doesn't it? That we sang that, that Jesus is our freedom, but we, do we truly believe it? You know, sometimes we can believe that our freedom comes in advancing up the social ladder, having certain power or, or certain connections or something like this. You know, we'll see that this morning even a bunch of religious people, all the religious people of the day, they thought in Jesus' day that their freedom came from controlling the system that they had and for having worship the way it had always been. Well, Jesus is gonna expose their, their flaws uh, rather quickly. So let's go ahead and check that out. Mark chapter 12, verses one through 11. Mark 12, one through 11, John Mark writes, and Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him upon the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. 
But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Now, as we've studied through Mark's gospel, I think one of the things that we've seen is just the pace at which Mark writes, right? Especially in the first half of the book. Everything is immediately, immediately, immediately. Mark's just moving on and moving on and moving on. He leaves out a lot of details that other gospel writers include. Because Mark's primary aim in writing his gospel is that we would rightly understand who Jesus is and that we would rightly understand his mission and therefore the mission that he gives his followers. And so everything moves real fast until Jesus begins to approach Jerusalem. Because it's at that time that you really see the mission that Jesus has and our mission by extension uh, come into full view. And so last week, Ethan did a great job just walking us through Mark chapter 11 when Jesus actually enters into Jerusalem. But one thing that I want you to note is, hey, we've been in this series for a while, right? So the start, since the start of the school year. But from last week all the way through Easter, every message, every, everything that Mark is writing about is simply the last week of Jesus' life. Okay, it's all the Passion Week. So Mark slows way down. He just pumps the brakes and he gives us all these details. He devotes over a third of his gospel about the last week of Jesus' life. And we see the intensity of it, right? I mean, we saw it last week. I mean, Jesus, he comes in, this humble entry uh, into Jerusalem, and then he, he, he goes away, comes back the next day. And on Monday of the Passion Week, what happens? He curses the fig tree. Uh, he cleanses the temple. And they come in Tuesday morning of the Passion Week and the disciples see that the fig tree that Jesus had just cursed the day before, well, now it's withered, it's not producing. And hey, all the scribes, the, uh, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the elders, they gather together in the temple courts to trap Jesus. And when Jesus enters in, they try to trap him. Jesus turns the tables on them. And then now it's Tuesday afternoon. And that, this is really where we're at today, Tuesday afternoon. And Jesus, he tells this parable. Uh, he tells this parable right against the religious leaders. And, you know, as Jesus begins this parable and he starts talking and he says um, how there's a, a landowner and he owns a vineyard and the, and the landowner, he's leased it out to some uh, tenants who are working the vineyard for him. Anyone listening to this can imagine that scenario because that's how life worked. So, yeah, we've, we've seen this happen. We, we know people who do this. We, we, we know workers. We've, we've heard of landowners. They, this is relatable. And so as the story continues, and Jesus says, and then he's sending his, his servants in to get a share of the harvest that's rightfully his, and the farmers, they're just beating these servants, and they're killing servants, and they're all coming back empty-handed. I mean, you can imagine just the outrage, right? I mean, they're, they're, you could feel the outrage because they can picture this scenario. They probably know people who've, who've been in a scenario like this. And so they can feel the outrage. You know, 
the way this story plays out, it's, it's kind of similar to Nathan and David. You remember that one, right? Where uh, Nathan tells David this story about, hey, there's a rich guy and a poor guy, and this poor guy, all he has is his prized lamb. I mean, he's loved that lamb since he was a boy, and then the rich man comes, and he takes the lamb and kills the lamb and serves it uh, at his dinner party. And David is just outraged, right? Who, who would do this? And what has Nathan done? Well, he's just caught him in a trap, right? He's trapped him in his own web of lies and adultery and, and murder and all this. And he turns the tables and he points to David and says, no, you're, you're the man. Well, Jesus is doing the same thing here. I mean, the religious leaders, when they're first hearing the story, they would have thought the same thing as all the crowds. Like, man, what kind of wicked tenants are these? I mean, who does this? You're in charge of property and servants come and you're beating them and you're killing them. I mean, these guys deserve everything they're going to get. I mean, they're, they're thinking that. And then the light bulb, oh, he's talking about us. That's exactly how it would have been received. Now, just to kind of help us kind of step back and then walk through this story and making sure we get it, uh, it's helpful to read Isaiah chapter 5, okay? Because in Isaiah chapter 5, the first seven verses, you see how um, God often refers to Israel as a vineyard. And there, a lot of the same imagery is, is recaptured and reappropriated by Jesus in this parable, okay? God's relationship with his chosen people, Israel. So check that out, highlight it, make a note, Isaiah chapter 5, first seven verses. Um, but to really understand this parable and, and just to get the, to the meaning of it, the root of it, it's helpful to just kind of read and pay special attention to the direct discourse that we get, right? The statements that are made, we've got three of them. The first one is made by the landowner himself. The second one is made by the farmers, the tenants who are working the land. And then the third one is made by Jesus as the narrator of the story. Okay, so we'll, we'll hit the first one first. And, you know, there's the guy, he he's owns this vineyard, he's rented out, there's tenants who are coming in. And everything he's gotten from his land, his vineyard, is nothing but insult, nothing but shame, nothing but heartbreak. I mean, the way that his servants have been treated, beaten, killed, I mean, it's terrible. And then we're invited into what this guy's thinking. And he's thinking to himself, okay, all I've got left, I've sent every servant I have. The only thing I have left is my one and only beloved son. And he thinks to himself, you know what? I'm gonna send my one and only beloved son because surely they'll respect him. Now, as you're reading the story, and as you're hearing that, you're thinking, why are you thinking that? They've killed every servant you've sent, or, or they've at least beaten them. They've beaten and killed every servant you sent. Why are you thinking that all of a sudden you send your son? It's going to be different, right? Why would you think that? It almost sounds maddening, right? Your one and only son, you're going to send him into this? It sounds, it sounds ridiculous. But what's Jesus revealing? He's revealing the heart of God, the patience of God the Father, the, his relationship with humanity who has scorned him and rejected him, how all the prophets have been sent to God's people Israel. And how did they respond to the prophets? They ignored them. They mistreated them. The last prophet that he sent, John the Baptist, they killed him. I mean, th this is what's happening. And how does God the Father respond to all that? He sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ. For us, for humanity, it reveals the endless hope 
that God has to recapture a sinful people for himself. And so he will send his one and only son, he will send Jesus. And you look at it, and from human wisdom, we look at that and we say, that's foolish thinking, that's foolishness. Why would you do that to your son? But it reflects the godly wisdom to recapture people for himself. And so this is what he does. And notice, as Jesus is telling this story, he knows that he's the son. He knows that his death is less than a week away. He knows what's gonna happen to him. As he's telling the story, he's speaking of himself. But he's also speaking of the goodness of God the Father, the, the love of God the Father, the patience of God the Father, the forbearance of God the Father. He's speaking of all this. And he knows the response of the tenants, and so he lays it out, and the response of the tenants is not good. We're invited into their thinking, and they think, this is the heir, this is the son. If we kill him, the inheritance will be ours. Now, foolish thinking leads to foolish living, okay? I mean, you look at that, and that sounds almost as backwards as the way the, the, the owner's thinking, right? Why do you think just because you kill the son, that then all of a sudden the land is just gonna be yours, the inheritance is already always gonna be yours? I mean, that sounds foolish too. Well, that sounds ridiculous too. You know, we see it in a grand scale in this parable, but the same thing is true for our lives, and we know it. Foolish thinking leads to foolish living, foolish actions. And you see it here. They foolishly think, if we kill the son, this is ours. Why would they think that? The religious leaders think, if we kill Jesus, hey, the religious system that we've created, we can keep running it, things will be good. And people today, what do we think? All I have to do is erase God out of my life and then I can chart my own destiny. It's the same thing. You understand what we see in this parable is the unchanging character of God and at the same time, the unchanging character of sinful humanity. That we think the same, we react the same and you, you see it in the world in which we live. And so what we must recognize is we don't own the vineyard, okay? We're not the owner of the vineyard. We are servants in the vineyard. That's what they failed to recognize. They thought, hey, this will be ours. We got it. All we need is power, control, authority. It's all ours. Then things will be good. And so the last point of direct discourse comes when Jesus, as the narrator, asks the question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? And when you're just hearing it, okay, if you just imagine that you're just hearing this for the first time, you don't know what the owner's going to do. Because you're almost wondering, is this guy just like a weak owner? Is he just like impotent? I mean, it just, uh, is he just like crazy? I mean, what's he going to do now that they've killed his one and only beloved son? Well, what's he going to do? He's going to enact justice against those wicked tenants. And this fulfills what the prophet says, that God will not be patient forever. Oh, he is a patient God, far more patient than you and I ever would be but he will not be patient forever. He will enact his justice. He will set all things right. But notice this, that while he judges the tenants, he does not destroy the vineyard. In fact, he doesn't even just not destroy the vineyard and then say, okay, I'm now reclaiming the vineyard for myself. What does he say? He says, I'm gonna then take the vineyard and I'm gonna give it to others. This reflects still the endless hope of God 
the goodness of God, that he doesn't just say, okay, humanity, you guys messed it up. You guys royally messed it up. That's it for y'all. I'm taking everything back. It's mine. No, he continues to invite us into his work and say, here, you be stewards. This is my creation. This is everything I have. No, but you steward it and you steward it well. He invites us back into it. Yes, he rightly judges the wicked, but those who are faithful, he invites back in. It's incredible. So, so what does this all mean for us? Well, it means that we live lives of accountability before God that is built on the foundation of the life of Christ. Our lives are lived accountable to God. Why? Because we're not the owners of the vineyard. We're not the owners of anything on earth. Everything we have, we're just stewards. We're stewards of our time, we're stewards of our talent, any kind of abilities, skills that we had, any kind of treasure, and all, all of our money, all of our resources, our homes, our vehicles, all that. We're just simply stewards. And so because we are stewards and not owners, we are accountable to God. And why are we accountable to him? Well, it's all, it's all built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Because God sent his one and only son for us on our account. And so the stone the builders rejected, Jesus, he is the cornerstone of our lives, the foundation of our lives. What God has done, it is marvelous that we can live lives built on him and his perfect foundation, despite how we have lived and, and the sin that we have committed. Well, ironically, after Jesus explains this parable, the religious leaders, they get it, right? Oh man, he's talking about us. And what do they want to do? They want to do the very thing that Jesus said they would want to do to him. They want to kill him. I mean, they say, oh man, we, we really want to imprison him right now. I mean, we want to get him. But now's not the time because it seems like that the people are just enamored with Jesus. So we got we to wait. We got to kind of strategize. We got to find a better time to get him. But everything that Jesus said they wanted to do to him, these wicked tenants, here, here are the wicked tenants, the religious leaders, knowing that Jesus is talking about them, wanting to do the very thing that Jesus said they'd want to do. Okay, so you see it all playing out. Well, some time goes by. Later that day on Tuesday, we don't know how much time, but a series of questions is asked to Jesus. We'll hit the first two this morning. Let's do the first one right now. It's Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Mark 12, 13 through 17. It reads, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, again, this, as these questions begin to come, it's really a string of a longer section where numerous questions are posed to Jesus, all trying to trap him. 
The first one, hey, can you pay taxes to Caesar and still maintain your fidelity to God? The second one is, hey, is the resurrection really verifiable in the law of Moses? Is that a reality? The third one is, okay, of all of God's commands, which one's the best, which one's the most important? What do we really need to concentrate on? And then the last one, is not even asked by them. It's actually asked by Jesus himself just to kind of spin things around on them and say, hey, do you see the contradiction between uh, uh, in scripture concerning the son of David? So anyway, we're gonna hit the first two this week. But the, the first one, it's fun because you've got the Herodians and you've got the Pharisees. Okay, these two groups, they do not go together, all right? The Herodians, they are loyal to Herod, to Rome. Uh, the Pharisees, they're not loyal to Rome. They hate Roman occupation. They want Rome out of Israel. They're, they're just concerned about the Mosaic law. But what both groups have in common is a hatred of Jesus. They both think if Jesus is out of the way, things will be much easier for us. And so they get together, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they come to Jesus and they try to trap him. And they try to tra trap him with this issue of taxes. Taxes is an explosive issue, right? It's an explosive issue then, it's an explosive issue today. But it was an ex especially explosive there because when Rome came and, and you have Roman occupation, they add this additional tax. And this is really the tax that's being referred to here. And it's a head tax for everyone who lives there. Now, it's not an income tax. They had that type of tax as well. It's not property tax. They had that type of tax as well. Now, this is just, hey, you're here, you're taxed. And it's this oppressive tax and it's a ruthless tax. And so when the question comes, hey, is it, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they're referring to this. You need to know that every, every Israelite there, they, they're going to know people. They're going to know fathers or sons or brothers or cousins or uncles or grand. They're going to know somebody who has been so oppressed by Roman occupation that they've been driven off their land that they've, they've had things confiscated, taken from them. Some have been executed when this tax was put into place. There was a revolt that sprung up and many were, many were executed. They're, they're gonna know people like this, friends and family who've experienced this. And so if Jesus comes and he says, yes, this tax is good, pay it. Well, he's gonna undermine all his support in Israel. How can you support this kind of tyranny, this kind of evil? Right? He can't say that. But if he says, no, the tax is not good, don't pay it, well, then he's going to lead a revolt and he's going to be uh, indicted for treason and all kinds of things. So it's really like a rock in a hard place. What do you say? Is it, is it good or is it not? It's, it's a tough trap. But Jesus, he's brilliant, right? And so he asks them, he asks the religious leaders, any of y'all have a denarius on you? And evidently he does not have one, right? He doesn't have one that he can just take out of his pocket or something and say, here, see this coin? No, he says, any of y'all have one? And so he forces the religious leaders to dig through their purses to come up with this coin. And the whole time they're kind of digging through, trying to find it, they're probably wondering, I wonder what his intentions are with this. Like, where is this going? And so they hand him the coin, and he says, okay, whose inscription is on it? Now, coins in those days were especially used in Rome for purposes of propaganda, 
okay? And so let me, let me show you how this worked. On the, on the one side of the coin, there was a picture of Caesar, okay? And it read, the inscription on it was, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus, right? On the other side of the coin was a picture of a woman uh, seated on a throne with a staff, a spear in one hand, and an olive branch in the other hand, and it read, high priest, Okay, so what this coin was, was basically a portable idol that just kind of proclaimed this pagan ideology and supported it. And so Jesus, he said, okay, whose inscription's on there? Caesar. All right, just go ahead and give Caesar what's his. Go ahead and give him all his idols back. You're going to take Caesar's money into the temple courts and do business with Caesar's money in here? Go ahead. Whatever tax he's doing, go ahead and give it back to him. You say, okay, well, is he, you know, and then he, he kind of add, he adds the other. And, and when he adds the, the second half of this expression, he's doing more than just balancing the scales. Because what he then says is truly phenomenal because he says, and give to God what is God's. And so then the question comes, well, what is God's image on? Where does God place his image? On all of us. We are all created in the image of God. So when you render Caesar what's he, he can have the money. He can, he can have these little tools of idolatry. Yeah, give that to Caesar. What do you give to God? Your whole life. Everything you are. Why? Because his inscription, his image is on you. So you give him everything. And Jesus, he's, he's actually going to make this point in all of the questions that, he's, that he has asked to him, posed to him. That, that, that's really the underlying issue. And it gets really just front and center explained when they ask, okay, well, what's the greatest command? And he says, love God with everything you've got with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all of who you are. Why? Because his image is on you. So we, we bring to God everything we have. We, we owe God what bears his image. And what bears his image? You and me. We are created in the image of God, so we owe him everything. Well, the questions, the traps, they keep coming. So let's go ahead. We'll check out uh, one more this week. It's Mark chapter 12, 18 through 27. And it says this, And the Sadducees came to him um, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. 
So this question, this time, you got, a, you got a different group of people who come, all right? Now it's the Sadducees. And Mark lets us know right off the bat, the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. Okay, so when they're asking this question about the resurrection, all they're trying to do is to poke holes in this whole idea, this whole concept, this whole belief of the resurrection. And so they, they go to this point of Mosaic law. You can read about it, Deuteronomy 25, or you can see it played out in the book of Ruth. Uh, you know, what happens if, some, if, if, if someone marries a woman and then he dies, but there's no offspring, what happens to the woman? And so, and, and these marriage laws are put into place for two primary reasons. One, to protect the woman so she doesn't become destitute and have no one to look after her. And two, to keep wealth in the family. And so th that's why they're in place. Now, the, the Sadducees, they take this uh, whole idea, this whole concept, and they throw out this really incredible scenario. They say, okay, suppose there's a man, he has a wife, he dies, there's no kids. All right, we know Moses, Mosaic law, she goes, she has to marry the next brother. And same thing, all the way down through seven brothers, there's no kids. And then here comes the punchline. And you know when the Sadducees delivered the punchline, man, they're delivering this thing with relish, right? They're, they're just so excited because they think we've got him now. Say, so in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus just lays right into them. You know, it's just great. He's like, you guys don't have a clue. You don't know the power of God. You don't know anything. You're quite wrong. You don't understand the scriptures. And, and he, just, he just lets them know by using this example of God in the burning bush. And he says, you remember when God appeared to Moses? What did God say? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is, what is God saying? Is he just saying, hey, I'm the God of people who are gone? I'm the, I'm the God of corpses? The God of dead people? No, he says, I am. He doesn't say, I, I, I was their God. He says, I am their God. And Jesus points out, God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. They're still alive. Their expression have, of life has been transformed from one realm to another, but they're still alive. There is a resurrection. When Jesus answers the Sadducees, he's primarily going back to their heart. The issue of marriage, he touches it. He, he, he explains it a little, but what he's primarily getting at is, here's your thinking about the resurrection, and here's why it's all wrong, because you don't even know the scriptures that you're reading. So you're quite wrong. You don't get it. You know, sometimes we're quite wrong too. Oftentimes for different reasons, it's not so much that we don't believe in a resurrection, but sometimes our concept of the resurrected life um, tends to be just this earthly utopia, right? Okay, so everything that's good on earth, we just take that and maybe amplify it a little bit. You know, we get just... Uh, our bodies are just like spruced up a little bit, you know, we're just a little bit better and uh, all our families together and everything's, and why, why do we think that? Because oftentimes in family, it's the closest thing that we experience to unconditional love here. And so what we end up with is really a man-centered view of the resurrection, that everything will be good. And so you'll hear people and they'll talk after, uh, you know, maybe a spouse has died and so what do, they, what do they talk about? Oh, I just can't wait to get to heaven and see and be reunited with my spouse. Now, that's fine. 
But understand, heaven is much better than that. It's not man-centered. We get to be with God. Right? That's the purpose. Right? And, and Jesus, by the way, he says, hey, there's no marriage in heaven. You'd be like, hey, there's no marriage in heaven. Why is there no marriage in heaven? Because what's marriage function? What's the purpose? To display the image of God to a, to a creation here, right? Marriage is to, a godly biblical marriage represents and pictures the unity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And so in heaven, oh, we experience the fullness of him. He fills everything in every way. God truly is all in all. So it's not a man-centered view, which is ultimately selfish. It's fully God. Like we get to experience all of him. And so I believe that's why God really doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about heaven in this next life and what that's going to look like. There's a little in the scriptures, but there's not a ton. Why? Because I think it would just blow our mind. We can't even probably comprehend it too well. I mean, Paul says right now we're just kind of seeing through a mirror dimly. And so in our dimness, in our misthinking, sometimes we just think it's a better expression of what we have now. Now, I believe it's a transformed reality, something far greater than we can even comprehend. Because this is actually what Jesus says. Mine, mine can't even comprehend what I'm preparing for you. So what does this mean for us now? It means as best we can, we center our lives around God now. now that informs, obviously, how we relate to our families, how we relate to our spouse, how we relate to our kids, how we relate to our neighbors, how we relate to government, uh, our coworkers, everything. It informs all that, yes. But it, it, it means God is the center of it all. We center our lives around God now. You know, we think sometimes that happiness, joy, satisfaction, peace, love, all, all these great things, that they can come through achievement, advancement, that we can somehow attain them, grasp hold of them. What Jesus is trying to wake us up to through here and what the first African Baptist Church of Savannah, Georgia realized was that true freedom, true joy, true happiness, only Jesus can give that. You can't find that anywhere else. And so our job, we, we just walk we endeavor to walk more faithfully with him, to know him better, to walk with this sense of optimism and hope that we see the Father display in his interaction toward, uh, toward his vineyard. To, to walk with this whole idea that I'm going to render to God all that is his, and that means all my life. I just want to give it to him as a living sacrifice. It, it means that as, as we look at this, this final story, hey, the resurrection, when God truly is all in all, there's this yearning and there's this desire. I want to experience that here and now. I want God to be all in all in my life because that's where freedom, joy, happiness, love, peace, that's where it's found. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that one day, you will fill everything in every way, that you truly will be all in all. God, how we look forward to that day. God, forgive us for in the meantime when we think we can experience uh, joy and peace and love in some other way, some way of our own doing, our own invention. God, it all comes from you. God, help us to steward the life that you give us well. 
as we live empowered by your spirit. We recognize we do need your help for that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.